This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Let's find our, our seats and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Uh, Acts chapter 19. Um, here's how we're going to move through the rest of Acts. Fast. So uh, we'll have seatbelts starting next week in all the chairs, uh, so you'll be able to keep your place. Um, But we are going to go ahead and seek to wrap up Acts by right at the first of the year, so we will have spent a year in the book, um, but we're going to kind of wrap it up. So that means we're going to cover about two chapters a week. Now, this week, the two chapters I'm going to cover all tie in because they all have to do with uh, what God did in the city of Ephesus and starting a church there. So let's pray. And then I'm, uh, we'll, dig into the, uh, we'll dig into the text. God, we come to you today um, anticipating that you will speak to us through your scripture. Your word is living. It is active. It's the very breath of God. And so we pray, Lord, that as we read these words on the page, that you would breathe into our hearts um, truth and life and hope, adjustment and correction, encouragement, strength, All that you want to do, would you please do it today through your scripture? And most of all, would you show us your power, the power of your word, the power of the gospel, the work of Jesus for us? And we pray that, uh, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying and hearts to respond. Lord, just change us, we pray. We want to be changed. And so we pray that you would change us and empower us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by asking you a question. How do you know when God is at work? How do you know when God is at work? To, to use some kind of common language that you sometimes is, how do you know when the Spirit is moving? God is at work. How do you know when the Spirit is moving? How do you measure what God is doing? You ever heard somebody say, ask you a question, so what's God doing in your life? What's God doing in your family? What's God doing in your church? How do you measure what God is doing. Is it, is it something you recognize? Is it when, when God meets you and you sense that he's near? Is that how you know God's at work? Maybe you're reading your Bible or hearing it preached and you sense the nearness of God, sense God speaking to you. Is that when he's at work? Or you're singing songs like we sang today and you're encountering the Lord uh, through our time of corporate worship. And is that how you know? Or maybe you sense conviction of sin. Or maybe there's a time where just you sense, you'd say, the love of God, the love of the Father for you. Is that the times that the Spirit's moving and He's at work? Or maybe it's when something happens that's beyond you. We go, man, that was not me, that was God. God's moving. Maybe you've been looking for a job, can't get a job, no job anywhere. All of a sudden, this perfect job falls out of the sky and you say, God gave me that job. Or maybe you've had a relationship that's broken and somehow, out of the blue, you get back together with that person and God mended our relationship. And God was at work. How do you know God was at work? Because we were at odds and now we're together. That's God at work, you see. Something that's beyond you. Maybe you're healed of a, of a disease. Maybe someone you've been praying for meets Christ and becomes a Christian. You say, whoa, God is working because it's something that's beyond you. So it's because, maybe it's he's near you. Maybe it's he's beyond you. 
uh, something unexpected. How do you know? Well, the passage we're looking today, I think, is going to be helpful in this regard. Here's what Acts is about. Just to review, back to Acts 1, 1. Luke writes, Theophilus, that's the guy who receives the book, and he says, I want to you know, remind you in my first book, which was the Gospel of Luke, I, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the implication is the book of Acts is all that Jesus continued to do. So I wrote you about his life, that's what he began to do, this is what he continued to do. So when you read Acts, you're reading what God did. It's all the work of God. Everything we read in here is what God was doing. And what's interesting is we are today going to read about Ephesus, and Paul spends a lot of time there. We get a little bit more picture of what was happening there than the other cities. Some of the cities, we get their name in a couple of verses and he's gone. But, but Paul's going to camp here, and we're going to see what God did through him in this city and what God did through his people. And we're going to begin to recognize the work of God in a number of ways so that we can pray for his work to be like what we read in the Bible and we can recognize his work. It's important to recognize what he is doing. And here's what we're going to learn as we look at the church at Ephesus is that the power of God works in both the ordinary and the extraordinary experiences of our lives. The power of God is at work in the ordinary and the extraordinary experiences of our lives. There's a good book that talks about this. Maybe you've read it. We have it, I think, available at our resource center called Experiencing God by Blackaby, where he writes about how to, how to see God at work, how to recognize God at work, how to pray for God at work, how to welcome God at work. So today we're going to walk through two full chapters, about to get going, and I'm going to read a section, comment on it, and then make some application throughout and at the very end. But I want to look at eight different ways in these two chapters that God is at work in ordinary and extraordinary ways. Here's the first way. God is at work in evangelism. That's the first thing in chapter 19. So let's read chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God's moving here, God's acting, God's working in evangelism. Paul shows up and he instantly meets people that are ready to believe in Jesus. They're just ready. He, they're called disciples, but they're really disciples of John the Baptist. They, they, they say that they were baptized with John the Baptist's baptism. And if you remember John the Baptist, he came and said, Jesus is coming. Uh, there's one coming after me, the Messiah. And so get ready for the Messiah by being baptized to repent and show that you're waiting and ready for him. Look at verse 4. 
Paul said to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. They had that. Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. They didn't have him. They weren't baptized in the name of Jesus. They didn't know. They didn't even know that, that the Spirit had come at Acts 2. Now, it says they didn't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. They would have known the Holy Spirit from the Old Covenant. If they knew John the Baptist, he talked about the Spirit. He said, there's one coming after me who will baptize you in the Spirit. So when it says they said, we didn't even know the Holy Spirit, it's probably referring to the fact that they didn't know the Spirit had been poured out at Acts. They just heard John say, the Messiah is coming and the Spirit's coming. Paul says the Messiah came, his name is Jesus. Paul says the Spirit came, Pentecost, Acts 2, and they say, we believe. They baptized them, and when he puts his hand on them, they began to speak in tongues. And they began to prophesy. So they speak to God in languages they don't know, and they speak words uh, that, that speak from the heart of God, these prophetic words they give. Now, this is very ordinary evangelism, but a very extraordinary response. Um, we only see this happening a few times when people are converted and experience these kinds of spiritual gifts at the same time. And it's usually to show that, the, that, that what is happening is that the book of Acts is fulfilling its plan from Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, we see that it says, Jesus says to the disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, that's where they are, Samaria, that's a ring around them, that's further distance, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see that play out. Acts 2, the Spirit comes at Pentecost on the Jews in Jerusalem. Then in Acts 8, he falls upon the Samaritans, that's Samaria, and they speak in tongues when they hear the gospel and believe. And then in Acts 10, Peter goes to the Gentiles, they hear the gospel, Peter's not even finished talking to them, and they just burst out speaking in languages they don't know. And then we, that's the ends, of that, that's Gentiles, and then Ephesus is sort of the ends of the earth, well beyond Jerusalem, into a totally different culture. And so we don't see this as the normal response, spiritual gifts are common and to be expected, I believe, but we don't see that as the normal response of conversion, that someone's converted and has this experience. So there's kind of an ordinary gospel um, Opportunity here, but an extraordinary experience when they are converted. They are leaning forward. They are looking for Jesus. They're, they're kind of what we might call low-hanging fruit, meaning it's ripe and ready to be picked. These are the kind of people who believe that Jesus was coming. They're just waiting for somebody to tell them he came. They're just waiting. So they're ready and waiting. As soon as they hear, boom, they believe. And so that happens. God draws us to people that are, that are ready to believe. I think there's a couple kinds of people that fit this kind of profile. You know, one is people that are struggling. People that maybe have gotten a, unbelievers that have gotten a terminal medical diagnosis. That's a person that's open to hearing about eternal life that wasn't open before. Someone that lost their job and is struggling financially. Someone that's going through a divorce. Someone who's going through a hard time. Someone that's struggling with an addiction. Those are people that are often open to the gospel in another way. Sometimes they're low-hanging fruit. I'm hurting. I'm just looking for somebody to tell me the way for, for my life to be the way it's supposed to be, to meet Jesus. Another one is young people. I think young people, not, exclu- not, uh, not across the board for sure, but as a demographic, young people are often low-hanging fruit, so to speak. They're ripe. Most people are converted at 18 or under. That's by far the majority of conversions. Some people are uh, college age are converted as well when people are making decisions about their lives. So if you take 22, 23 years old or younger, those are some of the ripest folks for the gospel. So we want to ask the Lord to lead us to people who are 
ready to hear. All they need to do is hear because they're ready. They're searching. They're looking. And uh, so let's keep our eyes. Let's pray. Look for struggling people. Now, certainly older people who aren't struggling need the gospel and are open as well. But having said that, sometimes the people that are leaning, ready to respond like these disciples of John are those who are young and thinking about their life or those who are in a difficult situation. So this is ordinary evangelism, but extraordinary response. Look what happens next. It says that after that, he enters the synagogue. He speaks for three months. The people don't want to hear it after three months, and so he leaves. And he goes to this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And there it says that he continued for two years. Every day, he reasoned in the Hall of Tyrannus. He, he, he debated. He taught. He dialogued with people for two years. Now, what's the Hall of Tyrannus? Uh, well, probably it's a place, it's a lecture hall. Tyrannus is probably a philosopher or a teacher that had a lecture hall and he maybe rented it out or something. The, the word Tyrannus means tyrant. So we don't know if his parents named him that or his students called him the tyrant. We don't really know, but this is what he was called, Tyrannus. And so Paul goes there and teaches every day. Now, some translations or, or some text of the Bible Oh, um, not the oldest text, have an additional note here, and it's, it's a footnote in the ESV, saying that he taught from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. daily. The very oldest texts of the Bible don't include that. Later, there's manuscripts that include that, so it appears to be added later and may not be original, and that's why it's not in the text, and that's why it's footnoted at the bottom. But one scholar said that it's very likely that this was an oral tradition that was passed down, and so some copyist later put it in the manuscript. Um, so it's very potentially likely that he taught maybe five hours a day in the middle of the day, and that would go with their schedule. They would work early in the morning, they would break at midday for a siesta, for a rest, a nap, they'd eat, go to sleep, and then they would get back up mid to late afternoon and work some more. So Paul likely worked in the morning till about 11 o'clock, then he stopped and lectured for three, four, maybe five hours is what the oral tradition is, that he lectured for five hours a day. This is very ordinary. We're about to read something that's going to blow you away that's extraordinary. But this is very ordinary. A guy standing up, think about this, a guy standing up for two years lecturing daily. Uh, one, one commentator did the math and said, well, if he did teach uh, five hours a day, six days a week, it says daily, but he would have taken the Sabbath off. Uh, two years, if he did that, that would have been 3,120 hours of gospel presentation and argument. That is a ton. So we're about to read something that's wild, but just know that, that God saved many people through the ordinary, not just the extraordinary. Uh, think about this. People came in and visited and they heard Paul. Certainly some people argued. Certainly some people were unfazed and found it irrelevant. Certainly some people were saved and said, wow. Certainly some people came a day and never came back. Certainly some people came every day for long periods of time. Uh, certainly some people were converted and went and told others because it says in the passage in verse 10 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek, after those two years. So it means that many people heard and went elsewhere and told. But this is day in, day out, just plodding along, telling the gospel, dialoguing, answering questions, listening to perspectives, debating, reasoning with people. Okay, so God works through evangelism. Sometimes there's dramatic things 
like someone responds and experiences spiritual gifts. But sometimes it's just on and on for long periods of time. Let's read the next passage where we see how God worked uh, in a different way. The next passage shows us how God is at work in healing and demonic deliverance. Verse 11. And it's so cool that Luke writes this right after the 3,120 hours of lectures. Look what we read next. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, I'm sorry, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Wow. There are miracles, but look at verse 11. He was doing extraordinary miracles. Now, I think a miracle by definition is extraordinary. It's something that's supernatural. Uh, God works through the ordinary and the extraordinary. God works through the natural and the supernatural. God works through the expected and the unexpected. God works through the mundane and the spectacular. But here, these aren't just run-of-the-mill miracles. These are extraordinary miracles. Where... Actual aprons and handkerchiefs are taken from Paul's body. Now, probably what this is, when it says handkerchiefs, um, it's not like probably old school tent revival, get a hanky wave as an amen. That's probably not what they're talking about, that kind of hanky. They're talking about like what he probably used as sweat rags when he worked, something that he wrapped around his head. The apron is something that he worked in for his tent making uh, work. And these things were taken off his body, and when they touched people, they were actually healed. Now, why does God do that? I have no idea. Uh, It doesn't tell us why he did that miracle, but I think we could imagine a couple of things. One, based on what we just read, we know that Ephesus was a, Ephesus was, excuse me, a central place for occult practices, magic, witchcraft, uh, astrology, mediums, all this kind of stuff. Dark practices, magic arts, they were a central place for that. So perhaps he was showing that God is so much greater than their practices that even, even from one of his servants, even cloth that touched his servants, God could heal even in that way to show how much greater God was than their practices. Probably another reason is because God was wanting to uh, highlight Paul's apostolic ministry. He was probably doing radical, extraordinary miracles to say, this guy's the real deal. This guy's really sent from God. Paul is really the apostle to the Gentiles. And so there's this extraordinary attesting miracles to attest, to prove, to say, he's real, listen to him. That's probably what is happening here. 
And the next thing we find out is that, 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 that just because apron from Paul was used to heal someone, that we're not to think this is mechanical, that we can manipulate Jesus in any way, that it's like an incantation. Because look what happens next. These guys that don't know Jesus, they're Jewish exorcists. They do not know Jesus. How do we know that? Well, listen, they're called Jewish exorcists, first of all. Secondly, they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. These seven sons find a demonized guy. They're going to get rid of the demon. And they say, I, I, I adjure you. I'm speaking to you by the Jesus that Paul proclaims, which is probably a good indication. I don't really know him, but I've just heard of him, and it works for Paul. So they're probably like an incantation, magical, manipulate. You just take the name of Jesus and use it and, you know, Magical stuff will happen. Powerful stuff will happen. Well, not if it's detached from faith. Not if it's detached from knowing him. There must be faith, at least in the one praying. And so that's not the case. So what happens is, I mean, this is brutal. The, the demonized guy is empowered by the demons. This guy beats up seven people, rips all their clothes off, and they run, into the house, they run out of the house naked and wounded and bleeding. It's like what one author called a reverse exorcism. Instead of the exorcist casting the demon out, the demon casts the exorcists out of the house, beats them up and gets rid of them. It's, it's a victory for the devil in this case because they don't believe, they don't know, they're just using the name, trying to manipulate and use an incantation or something like that, a spell, whatever they were trying, trying to use Jesus' name to cast out a demon, but they don't know him or they don't believe in him. You know what happens after that? It says, verse 17, fear fell upon everyone, and the name of the Lord was extolled, lavishly praised, lavishly, high praise. Everybody is blown away by this. Wow. They hear the story, and the name of Jesus is hallowed. He's, the God is feared in this in a good way, feared in a healthy way. Fear fell upon them. They, they don't want to mess around with God. They don't want to play around with Jesus' name. They don't want to misuse. There's a fear over the people. And what happens is, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So I'm holding these two against one another. Does God work through regular stuff? Yeah, 3,000 hours of lectures, that's pretty regular. That's pretty regular. Does God work through extraordinary stuff? Yeah, aprons, casting out demons, uh, and all that. He works in all kinds of ways. And these new believers are so radically converted, verse 19, a number who had believed, they, they took all of their magic arts, they brought all their books together, and they burned them, and it was worth 50,000 drachma, which is 50,000 pieces of silver. If you have the ESV study Bible, I know some of you do, there's a note on there where they figure it out. Well, thank you. They figure it out, and they say that it's worth roughly $6 million by today's numbers. That's a lot of occultic stuff. They bring all their paraphernalia, all their books, all their doodads, whatever stuff they use. That's the technical term. They bring all of that and they burn it and it's worth $6 million. So God is showing us in this passage how when He works in powerful ways, people are really converted. People are really brought from darkness to light. People are really changed. By his power. God works in healing and demonic deliverance in this passage. Number three, God is at work affecting an entire city. The gospel penetrates the city. We're going to read the rest of this chapter and see what happens in Ephesus after this. 
where the whole city is affected. Verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That was what they called the Christian movement, the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging them, with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied... You ought to be quiet and do no, nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and they are, there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So here's what happens. Um, Paul is ready to go to Jerusalem, but we see before he does, there is this disturbance, this commotion, the text says. It's, this no small, it's no small thing, this no little disturbance concerning the Christian movement. And so this guy, Demetrius, he's the guy who's sort of the ringleader of it all. And uh, he is being affected. His business is being affected. What he does for a living, he's a silversmith. He makes shrines of Artemis, probably of the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was in Ephesus. And it's historically known. People from all over the world came. She was the goddess of fertility, also the goddess, also known as Diana or Artemis. 
And so people would come here. They had weekly a weekly wor- uh, celebration and worship time on an annual basis. People would come. And one of the things people would do is they'd buy a shrine. They'd buy a little statue of Artemis or a statue of the temple, take it home, put it in their shrine, and then worship and maybe make sacrifices to the God and that sort of thing. Well, what Demetrius says is, hey, we're being affected because Paul, you know, almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded, he says. Almost our whole province has heard this guy. And what does he say Paul says? He says, Paul says that gods made with hands aren't gods. If you can fashion it with your hand, it's not the real God. It's a, it's a God of your imagination. And that's who Artemis is. So people aren't coming to worship. People, more importantly to Demetrius and the craftsmen, aren't buying the idols. The gospel is having such an effect in Ephesus that it is affecting the sin industry. It is affecting the idol makers. Those who make their living off false religion, it's it's affecting their pocketbook. And so he tries to go like all religious and holy. He says that, you know, there's a danger, verse 27, not only for our trade, but that the temple of the great goddess may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. He's speaking truth. She is being deposed. Jesus is deposing Artemis. She is a false goddess on a false throne, and they're seeing the true God on his throne, and people aren't buying the idols. And so this causes all the the artisans, the various craftsmen, to get upset. They're enraged. And you know, everybody likes a good riot, so they all run into the theater. The text says that most of the people don't even know why they're there. They're just yelling. And yeah, it's just, it's just pandemonium. Everybody's yelling. They're yelling, great is, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, this goddess. Well, they tell Paul not to go. Paul doesn't show up in this theater. They have a theater in, in Ephesus. It seats about 24,000 people. It's, it, I think the... Uh, uh, the excavations, there's been excavation, and you can see it today, as I understand, at least part of it. So they're in this large theater. Everybody's cheering. Uh, a Jewish fellow, they want him to get up and talk, Alexander. And so for two hours, the crowd yells, great is Artemis of, of the Ephesians. And so this looks crazy. There's a couple of Paul's helpers there. Are they going to be beaten, stoned, killed? What's going to happen? Well, finally, God's not only at work touching a whole city, such that the gospel penetrates in this way. But God also works through a town clerk, because this guy stands up and says, look, uh, we're in danger of being in a riot. If we're in a riot here, Rome will you know, come down on us, and we'll be in trouble. So we better not riot. Move along, citizens. There's nothing to see here. Uh, these guys have done nothing sacrilegious. Uh, these guys, uh, if, if, Arda, if Demetrius has a problem, let him take him to court. We've got courts. Let's hear it in court. And so God protects what's happening there. But it's a window into how God is at work. God is at work through persecution. God is at work in penetrating a city. God is at work through a town clerk who protects the believers, and they're able to go on their way. So we see God at work in a number of ways there. But primarily, number three, is God at work affecting a whole city. I mean, could you imagine this? What if God affected our whole city and the regions around such that various means, of, so, so that those who earn money off of sinful practices were complaining because they lost their business? What if there was such a revival in our nation? What if there was such a spiritual revival in our nation that the demand for internet pornography dropped because people were worshiping Jesus? And the pornographers are saying, wow, our God, the God of lust, our God is being deposed. 
because of the gospel in this country. Wouldn't that not be glorious to see the gospel take effect so that the gods of this age, wealth and greed, wealth and greed and image and power and lust, what if, what if that was all defeated? Well, that's what's actually happening in Ephesus, that kind of a thing. Number four, God is at work through encouragement. I'm not going to read the next section to you, verses 1 through 6, but it's just where Paul, in 21 through 6, it's where Paul goes to Macedonia and Greece. And it says in verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So God is at work through encouragement. Paul preaches the gospel, churches start, Paul goes back to those churches and just encourages them, speaks to them. The grace of God, the truth of Scripture, helps them follow God and honor Him with their lives. So God is at work through encouragement. Number five, God is at work through a worship service, is what we see in number five. Paul ends up in a town called Troas. He's left Ephesus now. He goes to Troas, and this is a worship service where God is at work, and he also does actually does a miracle in this worship service. Verse 7 of chapter 20. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room and we, where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So God is at work in this worship service. Now, why do I say it's a worship service? Well, verse 7, it's the first day of the week. So that's Sunday. And they worship at night. If you were in a culture that didn't take off like we do, uh, then the Lord's Day, Sunday, you'd worship at night. You'd work all day, and then you'd come at night, and that'd be your worship service. So that's what they're gathered. They're gathered to break bread. So they're probably sharing a meal, but they're probably sharing communion. Communion around a meal. And Paul talked with them, intending to part the next day. So they've got the Word, Paul's teaching. They've got the sacrament, one of the sacraments, um, communion. And this is the first day of the week. So this is a worship service. And Paul's going to leave the next day. So he's got a lot to say. So he teaches till midnight. It may have started around sundown, so he, we don't know. But he teaches till midnight. There's nothing to do when the lights are out, so they're, they're going to worship service. Teaches till midnight. Now, it tells us that there are a lot of lamps in the upper room. So they're in the third floor. There's a bunch of oil lamps running, which means there's like an oily smell in the room. Some commentator read, I read saying, well, this meant that there was less oxygen in the air. I didn't really do an experiment or study the chemistry of the whole matter, but perhaps there's less oxygen, I don't know, which could make one sleepy. I'd like to think it's not less oxygen. I would like to think that Paul was a bit boring speaking all night, because that comforts me as a preacher. And this guy falls asleep. 
God, this is really my second favorite, you know, human passage about Paul. I said last week, the first one is 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul uh, says that, hey, I baptized the household of Stephanas, but I, I don't know if I baptized any of the rest of you. He can't remember who he baptized. I'm so comforted by that. And then there's this verse, which is the Apostle Paul taught, and at least one person fell asleep while he taught. And it gives us the stages, just like some of you are experiencing right now. It starts with, he sinks. That's the nod thing going. So he's just sort of sinking and then catching himself and then trying to look very awake and chewing some gum or pinching oneself or whatever you do. So he's trying to stay awake, but then as Paul talks still longer, he's overcome by sleep. The guy is just out. And by the way, I know some of you sleep, but I really don't notice. So I want you to not feel badly about that because I literally have people come to me. This is true over the years and say, they come making excuses. Some of you have done this. They see me after the service and they're like, Hey, I'm so sorry the baby didn't sleep. I was up almost last night. I'm sorry I was nodding off during the sermon. And I always think, I, I don't notice. I really, I look at you, but I don't know what's going on. I really, just people say, hey, did that bother you when that baby cried for 35 minutes? It's like, I didn't even hear the baby. It didn't, I don't, so I don't really know. Who, I'm, I'm with you, but I'm not aware of who's, who's sleeping. So I don't know. God does, though. God does. So you might want to be, be well aware of that. But if you're tired and you didn't get sleep, I'm not offended. Get a nap, it's in the Bible, and just listen to the podcast tonight or tomorrow or whatever. You, you'll get it. We're human. Some humans are tired as we get all that. So whether it's the oxygen or whatever, this Eutychus guy. Now here's the funny irony of it. Eutychus, the name means lucky. So lucky, the young man lucky is sitting in the window. He's doing the nod. Then he sinks into a deep sleep because Paul has talked for hours and there may be oxygen deprivation. I don't know. But, and then he falls out of the window and it said he's taken up dead. The impression of the text is literally that he's dead. Not that he appears dead. So Paul runs down, puts his, grabs him, you know, maybe like Elijah in the Old Testament, and says he's still alive, there's still life in him. The, the, the way this reads is that he is, he is healed, he is resuscitated, he is brought back to life. Uh, and then Paul just goes back up and eats with them, and then talks till daybreak. It's an, they're pulling an all-nighter for the Lord here. Paul is giving his last teaching to these folks. So it's, I just love the humanity of it. I love the humanity that, that a, a young guy falls asleep. It's just a regular worship service. Hours of teaching, mind you. Uh, Lord's Supper, uh, Lord's Day, and then a guy falls down as if dead. Okay, let's get him, get him back to life. Okay, let's go back up there. I've got some more things to say, and let's uh, carry on. So God is at work through a regular worship service. Paul's, God's using Paul to teach all of these hours. It's not like the Paul has just got aprons removed from him and people are healed. He's also teaching up to 3,000 hours in a lecture hall. He's also teaching all night in an upper room. Very ordinary. But there's an intersection of ordinary and extraordinary when, when Lucky uh, gets providentially blessed and uh, comes back to life there. Okay, God at work. The next thing is God at work. So that's God at work through the worship service and a miracle. God at work through example. What we're about to read, Paul is going to talk to the Ephesian elders about his example. It's very precious. It's very important. What happens is, I'm going to skip the next few verses and we're going to jump down to 17. But Paul sails around Ephesus. He doesn't want to go back to Ephesus because it'll take him a lot of time. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. So he goes to this town, Miletus, and he just says, bring the elders to me. And so the elders, that is the pastors from Ephesus, all come up. Paul's been with them for three years. They all come up. Now, here's what we're about to read. Here's what's really unique about it. 
It's the only speech in the book of Acts directed to Christians. Every speech in the book of Acts, Stephen, Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter to Cornelius and his household, Paul, multiple speeches coming at the end of the book here. A lot of, you know, Paul speaking in various places. There's a lot of speeches. I think up to a third, I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it's like a third of Acts of speeches, something like that. It may not be quite that high, but it's a lot. A lot of speeches, only one speech to Christians. So in the book of Acts, what we have is the gospel going forth, and it's about the mission of planting churches. We don't get much about Paul speaking to the development and maturing of Christians. To get that, we read his letters. Because his letters almost have nothing about mission in terms of evangelism. His letters hardly talk about evangelism at all. They all talk about helping Christians grow. So that's why we need the full picture. The narrative of Acts is all about going forth, preaching the gospel, and people coming to Christ and churches being planted. Then Paul goes back and encourages them. Multiple times he goes back to teach them, help them develop. And then Paul writes them letters, which tells these Christians how to mature. So Paul is committed to both. One's not priority over the other. It is preaching the gospel to the lost and calling them to meet Christ and then helping people grow and mature as disciples. But to get Paul's ministry, you've got to read Acts and the letters. You put those together and you get a totally balanced perspective. He is all about both of those things. And so we must all be about both of those things as well. Reaching the lost and helping the saved mature and grow in holiness. God is after reaching the lost and building the church. And so here we see him speaking to these Ephesians elders Ephesian elders about his example. This is God at work through Paul's example. Verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. God works his grace in Paul's life and forms him. and He's a gospel-formed man. His character is formed by the work of Jesus Christ And he is a living example. He sets a pattern, and he's calling these elders to follow his pattern. So it's not just, well, I read the Bible and saw what what the Christian life is written about, but the gospel transforms us as we follow him, and then there are examples. We're able to see how God is at work through the example of others. Now, we don't hold up someone's personal example over the Scripture, but Paul is saying, really, this is how God was at work in him, and he, he gives us very biblical 
uh, evidences of how God had been at work in him and, and highlights it for them. And here's what's really helpful. If we did not have chapter 19, 20, if we just had 19, most of us would read that and go, whoa, that's a great history lesson. That's a fantastic history. There was aprons used to cast out demons. There was people that got saved, instantly started speaking tongues. The city was so affected, it, it trashed the idol industry. Wow! Six million dollars worth of occult material burned. That is so, I don't even own any occult material. That is so far beyond what I know. We would look at that. But when we read Paul's recounting of his three years, look at what he says. He doesn't say, I was with you doing miracles. He was. But that's not what he highlights. What does he say? You know, verse 18, I lived among you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He says, look, I was with you guys for three years, and here's what it was like. I was humbled. I'm sure he humbled himself, and he was also humbled by external experiences. I was humbled. I was in tears. Grieving for the lost, in tears, in weakness. I was in tears of my heart breaking for unbelievers and believers alike. Because he admonished believers, he says later. Trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. I was persecuted. It was hard. It was difficult. I was with you guys for three years. This is longer than he was other places. I was with you three years and it was difficult. God was with us, wasn't he? That's what he's saying. Look what he says about his teaching ministry. Verse 20. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I told you everything. And teaching you in public and from house to house. I told you everywhere. Testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I told everyone. He says, here's what I did among you. Yes, he did miracles. Yes, God did miracles. Yes, fantastic things happened. But here's the bottom line, he says. Everything that was profitable from the Bible, I told you. Everywhere, public places and in people's houses. Three people, hundreds of people. Everywhere, I told. And I told everyone. Didn't matter if you were a Jew, didn't matter if you were a Gentile. You needed to hear the good news about Jesus. I told everyone. And now he gives this example of uh, following the Spirit. He says, now... I'm going on not knowing what will happen to me. Verse 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to me everywhere I go. Imprisonment and afflictions await me. So now I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm following the Holy Spirit. See, he's saying to them, you know what I was like, and here's what I'm doing. He's giving an example. He's showing how the Lord is at work in him. He's saying, I'm following the Spirit. It's going to be hard, but I'm obeying the Lord. I'm following the Spirit courageously. And he says that his one desire is to faithfully fulfill his calling. I do not account my life as any value if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel. So he's saying, look, all I want to do, here's the example to the elders, all I want to do is fulfill God's calling. All I want to do is what God wants me to do. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Now, we have different callings than Paul, right? There's no apostle to the Gentiles here. And so we have different callings. But that's, that's a heartbeat for these elders and for us as well as people, as believers. To be able to say, that is my heart. Lord, this is my prayer. I, in whatever my calling is, as a son or a daughter, as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as, a, as an employee or an employer, as a neighbor, um, as a church member, I want to fulfill what you want me to do. God, I want to follow you. I want to follow what you're calling me to do. And a lot of that is mundane. Most of that is mundane. 
That's what he says. I was with you for, for three years, and here's what it was like. Tears, trials, and humility. That sounds pretty mundane. That sounds just like difficult. Day in, day out, taught for all those, for two of those years, he was teaching every day. Look what he says at the end. We didn't read this, but in chapter, in verse 33, I'm sorry, verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Hey, I didn't want your money. I didn't want your wardrobe. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember those Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. So he's telling the leaders here about his example that he gave, he worked hard so that he'd have enough to give to others because it's more blessing to extend yourself, to spend yourself, which he did, to give what you have. That is a greater blessing than to receive from other people. And so he said, that's, why, that's what I was about when I was with me. You remember that example is what he's saying. Number seven, we see God at work through leaders. Or at least it's being told to us that he will work through leaders. Because what he does next is he gives them a charge. He says, remember what I did, then this is their charge. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he says to these leaders, God has touched this city and this region with the gospel. And now it's really up to you guys. I'm leaving. It's up to you guys to care for God's people. God works through leaders, not exclusively through leaders. God works through everybody in the body of Christ. But he's making a point to these leaders. He calls them, verse 17 says they're elders. Um, here he says, verse 29, 28 Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So they're to be watching sheep, which means that's shepherd, which is the word pastor means shepherd. So here they're called pastors, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and overseers. Elders, pastors, overseers, those are all synonymous terms in the New Testament. And he basically says God wants to care for this church, so here's what you need to do. You need to pay close attention to yourselves. Paul tells Timothy the same thing. Pay close attention to yourself. You need to... You need to be aware of your own life because who you are is more important than what you do. Your relationship with Christ, he says to the leaders, is more important than what you do in the church. That's not just true for elders. That's true for everybody. Who you are is more important than what you do. Knowing Christ, walking with Christ, being formed, conformed to his image is more important than my service for him. It's who I am. That's what he says. So watch yourself. Actually, he, it also means watch one another. Because he says that from your own midst, there's going to be wolves that are going to raise up, rise up and teach twisted things. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, the letters to Timothy, Paul writes Timothy, and, he, and, he, and Timothy is in Ephesus. And he says to Timothy, it's all about correcting these false teachers that are in Ephesus. So they, this actually happens. 
And he's warning them about it. So pay close attention to yourselves. Pay close attention to your fellow overseers here as well, because some of them are going to go, uh, go off the tracks is what's going to happen. Second, pay close attention to the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Why? First of all, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So when there is an elder, the church must agree that an elder is above reproach. So the church has a say in an elder. An elder must feel a sense of calling from God that he's agreeing with and responding to. So an elder has a say about an elder. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that works through an elder and works through a congregation to put him in place. But it's ultimately the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gave you this role. So take it seriously. You are to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Why should you pay close attention to the flock? Because Jesus shed his blood for the sheep. They're so precious to God. The people in the church matter. They're so precious, so choice to the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for them. Therefore, your heart must be towards them. And that's true for all of us, but in a special way, the elders. We're all to love God's people because Jesus died for them. Third, be alert because I admonished you with tears. Remember remember my example. I pleaded with everyone to follow the Lord. Follow that example. This all seems very ordinary, doesn't it? Very, very ordinary. When Paul, reve- when Paul looks over his three years, he doesn't talk. He doesn't tell apron, exorcism, uh, burning the magic occult books. Hey, he doesn't tell those stories. He tells the stories of, here's what I want you to remember, humility, tears, day in, day out. It was hard, but God worked. He wants to remember we weren't greedy, trusted the Lord, Wanted to give to others. That's what he wants them to remember. He wants them to remember Jesus loves his people. And so you must love his people because he loves his people. You must ensure that there's sound doctrine because he doesn't want wolves to come and attack the sheep because he cares about the church. That's what he really emphasizes. When he reviews the three years, it is the ordinary that he highlights. Yet we know the extraordinary was part of what was happening as well. Here's the last thing and we're done. God works through relationships. Verse 36 through 38. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him him to the ship. God had worked in this city three years. God had worked in this city while Paul was with them in such a way he had knit their hearts together so that when he says, you're not going to see me again, they, they didn't say, oh, man, no more miracles? Oh, that is going to, wow, look at all that God did through you. Now what's going to, no. We're sorry that we're not going to see your face again. They're Miss Paul. They're on their knees crying and weeping. They knelt down and prayed. They are weeping and hugging and kissing Paul. Why is everybody all slobbery and stuff over this experience here? Because God had knit their lives together and for Paul to leave meant something. He was there three years and daily ministering among these elders. He had probably trained these elders, perhaps appointed these elders, equipped these elders. They had seen miracles together. They had been persecuted together. And they had walked through the mundane day after day after day together as well. God worked through their relationships. God built something extraordinary in this church, but he used many ordinary means. So God works through extraordinary and ordinary means to reach lost people and to build his church up. 
How does he do it? God works through evangelism. That was the beginning of the 19. He works through healing and deliverance. He works through affecting a whole city. He works through protecting a city. He works through encouragement as Paul goes back to Macedonia and Greece and encourages the churches. He works through a worship service, even a regular worship service that had a lot of teaching, a lot of teaching, and a Lord's Supper. Oh yeah, and a miracle. It did have that as well, brought Eutychus back up. Uh, he works through example. He worked through Paul's example for them to see. He works through leaders. He calls these leaders to care for the church. And he works through relationships. People join their lives together. Some of those are super ordinary. And some of those are extraordinary. And so, church, let's pray. First of all, let's pray for the extraordinary. We want both of these. Let's pray for the extraordinary. Let's be a people that are praying and expecting God to do things that take our breath away. Expecting God to do things that are unusual. Expecting God to do things that are surprising, like dramatic conversions of people. These are some dramatic conversions. When people are giving up $6 million worth of their old life, that's dramatic. When people are being healed, that's dramatic. Let's pray for healings. Let's pray for spiritual gifts like happened with the, in the beginning of the chapter 19. Let's pray for spiritual gifts. That's extraordinary. Let's pray for people who are in dark places, who are oppressed by demonic forces or even demonize themselves. Let's pray for people to be delivered. Let's pray for people who are in bondage to various sins to be delivered from them. People who are deeply, uh, deeply oppressed by various dark things, dark practices. Let's pray for them to come into the light and for their freedom. Let's pray for our city that there would actually be some commotion because there's Christians in the city. That there would actually be people who don't believe who would get stirred up because God is doing things around them where everyone has heard and there's people's lives being changed. Let's pray for that. That's extraordinary. Let's pray for the extraordinary, and lastly, let's value the ordinary. See, it would be a wrong reading of Acts to just go and say, we're just praying for the really big stuff. We want to be a New Testament church where there's miracles. Well, if you want to be a New Testament church, you're going to have to have tears and trials and humility. That's what Paul said. Weakness, fear, and trembling. That's the New Testament church. You're going to have to have heretical people that come in and teach false doctrine. That's the New Testament church. And, it's, and a lot of ordinary. Let's come for an all-night preaching fest. How about that? That's a New Testament church. I didn't think I could get my family here for that, but but could require my kids. But that's the New Testament church. It's a whole lot of ordinary. It's a whole lot of ordinary. Look at look at let's value the ordinary. Sowing seeds week in and week out. Persuading. Just trying to tell people about Jesus like he did at the Hall of Tyrannus faithfully day in and day out. Let's pursue that ordinary. Just trying to pray and share the gospel with people. The way Paul comes and encourages the churches in Macedonia, that's the ordinary, but we need it. We need to be encouraged in the grace of God. We need to encourage one another about the faithfulness and the character of God. That's ordinary. That's not miraculous, but that sustains us, that encouragement that Paul brings. Regular word and sacrament, receiving the Lord's Supper, it can seem ordinary, but it's powerful. Hearing God's word preached, that's the kind of stuff that's happening in the New Testament church. Day in and day out, serving, and as Paul did, saying, I gave what I have. It was more of a blessing to give, so that's what I wanted to do. That's ordinary. 
That's ordinary. Well, actually, arguably, that's extraordinary in our culture, right? But that's ordinary stuff. That's not a miracle. But that's the kind of stuff Paul said. When I was among you, I was giving. Ordinary stuff. The pastors in this situation protecting and preaching and caring for the church. Please pray for your pastors. For us. I don't have to say it in the third person. Please pray for us. That God would keep us true to His Word. That our heart would break for the people of God, as Paul talks about. That we would, He admonished with tears. He cared for the people of God. He preferred them. He extended themselves and He set an example. Pray that God would have our current leaders, that we would live this way and God would raise up many other leaders who live this way. And let's all be that as a people. But please pray for us that we would embrace that. And pray that God would build relationships in our church so that, like here, when those we minister with must leave, now Paul, arguably for death, probably, he's going to go die, but even if it's not martyrdom, that when we separate, there is a weeping and a tearing because there is a relationship that has been built. That The person we have built with, when they move on, that it's sorrowful just as here. Even if we might see him again, it's a tearing because God has done something relational in the church. That's what's happening here. That's, ordinary. that's not just we saw a miracle together. I love the miracles, want the miracles, but that's, we went through some hard times together as well, and that's why they're weeping. So let's pray for the extraordinary and expect the extraordinary and let's value the ordinary and look for God to work through that. Let's pray that God will sustain what he has built and that he will open our eyes to see him at work and to expect more from him than we currently see. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.